This is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, as it is called traditionally, the day in which we commemorate Jesus entering into Jerusalem. In this coming week, we will observe the final hours and the crucifixion of Jesus at Via Dolorosa. And then next Sunday, the conclusion of Holy Week, Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, when we will declare together and proclaim together, He is risen. But today we look at that triumphal, so-called triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four of the Gospels. We're going to look at it in the Gospel of Luke. Let's read together from verse 28. And when he had said these things, this is speaking of Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, Its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together for a moment. Holy Spirit, we ask again, once once again this morning, for you to illuminate your word, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive your truth and to apply it in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a saying, which maybe you have heard, 
goes like this. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Now, at first glance, looking at that statement, I found it to be very negative and a rather cynical point of view. After all, expectations are a part of all of our lives. We have certain expectations every day. Sometimes they come to pass, sometimes they don't. But when they don't, they don't always lead to repentance. And so, on the surface, it's kind of a difficult statement to swallow. A psychologist added one word to that statement, which I believe makes it true most of the time. He added the word unrealistic. And so the statement becomes unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. That can be true, probably is true, much if not all of the time. If you enter into a marriage relationship or are in a marriage relationship and you believe that you will never, ever disagree with your husband or your wife, if you think that your husband or your wife at all times always should meet every one of your needs and every whim you have and treat you royally, you have unrealistic expectations. I love my wife Donna, she loves me, but I think she would agree that that's unrealistic. If you, as an employee, what did she do? I turned away. All right, we'll talk about that later. If you're an employee at your company and you are a valuable employee and you know it and you do a good job and your review is coming up and you go in with the expectation because I'm such a valuable employee and maybe even have a little bit more of a higher view of yourself than you should, I expect that I'm going to get a 20% increase in salary. I don't know about your company, but in my company, that's an unrealistic expectation. We can think of many other examples. If last week, after the Phillies were 7-2, and two, you thought they were going to the World Series, that may have been an unrealistic expectation based on the last five games. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Unrealistic expectations can and probably do lead to resentment. But what about that original statement? If you think about it, in the right context, Taking away that word unrealistic, expectations can be premeditated resentments. We're looking at the text today in the 19th chapter of Luke. And I think within this text and within another passage we're looking at, which together depict what happened in the final week of Jesus' life, we can see how expectations may have led to resentment. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 9, 51 through 62. The first verse that we looked at last week, 51, said that when the time drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We talked about how Jesus was resolute, how he was focused on doing the Father's will, and accomplishing what he had set out to do. 
fulfilling his destiny and how we as believers need to follow that example. He was focused. Today's message is focus part two. Last week, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Today, he's getting getting there. In chapter 19, he's arrived. And so it says he sends his disciples as he is on the outskirts of Jerusalem before he enters the city into the village to retrieve a colt or a donkey. Apparently, he had made prearrangements with the owners of this donkey to allow him to have it for what he was about to do. And so they go ahead, and he tells them, if anyone asks you why, tell them the master has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Last week, we looked at Jesus making his way, preparing to go to Jerusalem, and had planned to go through Samaria, and he sent his disciples ahead of them to make preparations, and the Samaritans said, no, no way, we don't want him here. They rejected him. Here, Jesus sends his disciples again to do a task, to ask the owners of this donkey for the use of it. There's no argument here. They may have been disciples of Jesus. They ask, why are you untying it? The Lord has need of it. He's yours. It's not said there, but implied. And so the disciples take the colt who had never had anyone ride on it back to Jesus outside the city, and they throw their cloaks upon it, it says. And they set Jesus on the donkey, and then he begins his descent, his way into Jerusalem. And the disciples who were there, not just the twelve, but probably maybe hundreds and hundreds begin to lift their praises as we did this morning in worshiping him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The swell of praise is rising all around Jerusalem. And what's happening here is a fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Last week we looked at an Old Testament prophecy, messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah and spoke of how Isaiah is full of such messianic prophecies. This is one from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, Zechariah wrote this prophecy, which referred to the Messiah, and now it is being fulfilled. We could preach just from that ninth verse of Zechariah. There's so much there, but suffice to say that this is the fulfillment of that passage. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and the crowd is waving their palm branches, and the hands are being waved, and the praise is going up, and the cloaks are being laid down before him. And as he's 
going through the city, some of the Pharisees are entering close to the city. Some of the Pharisees are among the crowd, and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying that? Because they knew that the pro- proclaiming and the praise and the, uh, what the disciples and the followers were doing, the praisers were doing, was a recognition that this is the Messiah. He's come. For three years, Jesus has spent three years of his ministry sort of keeping the fact that he was the Messiah on the down low. Those who he would heal and those he'd minister to, often he would say, don't tell anyone. He was trying to sort of keep it quiet. But that's all past now. As he makes his way into Jerusalem, that public proclamation that he did not want to take place before its time is now happening. The Messiah has come. The praisers are praising him. The religious leaders are stirred up. As he approaches the city, perhaps the praise is now somewhat subsiding. It doesn't really say, but as he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus begins to weep. We see him in John's gospel before Lazarus is raised from the dead. The shortest verse in Scripture, Jesus wept. Here's another occasion where he weeps over the holy city. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And then he begins to share how within that generation, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he says, at the latter part of verse 44, you, they will not leave one stone upon another, those who would attack them, because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not know what would bring them peace. Their vision was out of focus. We'll come back to that, but first fast forward five days. Matthew 27. We're going to go to Matthew's gospel for this account. Jesus has been arrested. He has gone before the kangaroo court of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have sent him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. He's also seen Pilate once already. He's sent back to him. And in Matthew 27:15 it says, "Now at the feast, the governor, Pilate, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had been there had they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, the crowd, "Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, 
while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I had suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of, you, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Sunday, the praisers were praising, proclaiming him as Messiah. From Sunday to Friday, we go from praise to persecution. What happened here? A conventional wisdom says that those who were praising Jesus as he entered into the city were the same ones who were in that crowd saying, crucify him. I believe that some of them were, perhaps not all of them. If you look at the account that we just read in Matthew and some of the other Gospels, I think particularly in Luke, it's Pilate addressing mainly the religious leaders. But Matthew adds that element to make sure that we know that it wasn't just them, but it was the crowd. And so some of those who were praising him then turned to persecuting him. But even those who may have not been persecutors, we see nothing of them in these final hours and final days. Why did this happen? Why? How could they turn as they did? Because I would submit that in this case, expectations were premeditated resentments. What do I mean by that? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, those who did, hailed him as Messiah did so with sincerity. And I believe that even among those crowd, that crowd, those who eventually turn on him, welcomed him because the Messiah was here. But their expectations, though they were not unrealistic, their understanding was limited. Once again, we see a case where their, the vision is out of focus. They didn't understand that before Jesus could be the majestic Messiah, the conquering king, which he will be when he comes again, but before he could be the conquering king, he had to be the suffering servant, the suffering savior. Those who welcomed him into Jerusalem, many of, him, of them welcomed him as the one who would break the yoke of Rome over them. They thought their greatest enemy was the oppression of Rome, when in fact, their greatest enemy was the oppression of sin. That 
was the yoke of bondage that the Messiah would break, not by might, but by sacrifice, by willingly laying down his life in obedience to the Father and the plan from all eternity. They couldn't grasp on that Good Friday that the cross that was designed to bring humiliation was actually ordained by God to bring exaltation. Philippians 2, 8 and 9, and being found in human form, speaking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Those who turned from praise to persecution could not see the larger picture. They couldn't see the overarching picture in the rescue plan that God was unfolding. They knew they were oppressed by Rome and they wanted deliverance. But God had something else in mind. And so expectation can be premeditated resentment. As we look at those for whom this was true, it begs a question for us this morning. It's it's Palm Sunday. It has been a time of celebration. We've worshipped and praised the living Christ, the risen Christ, and well, we should. We should celebrate and praise on the one hand, but on the other hand, as we go into this final week of Jesus' life, this holy week, it's also a time for reflection, a time to do some self-examination. It's a time to ask ourselves the question, what are my expectations of Jesus? What are my expectations? If you don't know him, if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ, you may have no expectations of Jesus. But he's brought you here today. And maybe it's so that you could hear that he loves you, that he saved you, that he, is, he died on the cross to redeem you. And you can receive that gift of eternal life that he secured by his death and by his resurrection. Today, the resurrected king can enter your heart and life. And you can rest assured that your expectation of salvation will be realized. You'll not be disappointed. If that's you today, I hope that you will consider that. And we'll pray in just a moment before we go to communion so that you can do just that. But if you know him today, if you've walked with him for a time, maybe for many years, what are your expectations of Jesus? You may have some very realistic expectations 
based on what your understanding of Scripture is. God has told us, as believers, that we need to have hope and expectation. And we've been given the privilege as believers to pray for whatever God puts on our heart to pray for. For healing, for provision, for miracles. And we see and understand that God does those things, that he works among us in our hearts, in our lives. But there are times also where we have an expectation of the Lord that we're still waiting for to be fulfilled. Or he says no, and we don't quite understand why. Or things in our lives just don't go the way that we think they should have gone or we had planned. He's still the living Sovereign God. He's still God. Sometimes our focus can be skewed. We don't see the overall, overarching plan of God for our own lives and how we fit into the larger plan of God. No matter what happens or doesn't happen, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. He loves us. He has given us and blessed us with so much. We need to believe the truth of his word that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor anything, as Joel read this morning, can separate us from his love. Our expectations should not be premeditated resentment toward Jesus, toward God, because we haven't seen what we'd hoped be fulfilled. We have to battle against that. I've had to battle against it. I won't make this about me this morning. We don't need that. Each one of us has a story. And each one of us, I would suspect, can relate to what I'm saying. We're going to go to communion. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now. And Brother Dino is going to officiate communion time. But when we've completed communion, I would ask that those of you who may be struggling with expectations that have not been met, even realistic ones, I'd ask for you to come forward. The elders will be here, and Donna and I, would like to be here as well to pray for you following the service. So we're going to take time as we prepare for the Lord's table to reflect on where we are in our own lives. As my Brother Dino, I'm sure, will urge us to do a little self-examination. Before we begin, let's just bow our heads in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious day. We ask, God, that you would just enable us in these few moments before we receive the Lord's table to look in our own hearts, to confess any sin that separates us from you by our own doing and receive the forgiveness, Lord, that you promised and receive the bread and the cup joyfully and with expectation. In Jesus' name.